Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Ding dong. Hello. Bing bong. Hello. I leave May 3rd, May 5th, and I get back June 3rd. So. I totally right. missed it. Where are you headed? Japan. Oh. Have you ever heard that song, Hey Jealousy? <laughs> Income. It just popped into my head. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited. I don't think I've ever taken a vacation that long, ever. How long are you going to be there? A month. Whoa! I'm even more jealous. Yeah, I don't think <sighs> so. are you going to skip recording for a month then? Or are you just going to get up in the middle of the night? <laughs> Maybe I'll try getting up in the middle of the night. <laughs> or we can record earlier if, if Keith Lee's up for it. No, I mean, I can try and make it work. What time is it in Japan right now? I think they're, I think it's like 11 or 12 at night. Oh, that's totally doable. That's like 1 a.m. That's fine. <laughs> Chris is listening morning. to music over there. Yeah, I'm thinking. Um, actually, are we ready to start the show? Wait, yeah. are you are you wait, are you thinking about Brian's problem? No, I'm listening to uh, Traverches. It's very poppy. What is that? That's not how it's. That's not how it's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> You're not aware of Traverches? No, Lacroix is the correct pronunciation. I don't care what anybody says. It's a good. They're really. They're like a. They're kind of like a techno pop band uh, of scotland if i remember correctly they're really good how do you I believe, really I believe you say the name churches i think that's how you say it <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> it is scottish though so but it's got a v in there so it's it's churches churches mm-hmm. yeah they're really good I, I i dig it i'll have to look them up they have i mean it's like like most of it's like fairly like techno like kind of techno poppy like real chill to like kind of listen to while you're coding or whatever but there i don't know there's a there's a couple jams in here that are like the reminiscent of sort of like i don't know like certain like depeche mode songs and stuff like that i don't know it's really good nice i'll Check pull it, it down right after this is over that's what i'm gonna do is go listen you're gonna to listen it. to yeah yeah they're good oh man i was so punchy this i was so punchy this morning I was like, I had all these topics ready to go. I was ready to go. I was coming in hot, as they say. And then I went outside and I sat on my hammock for probably 30 minutes and I ate sunflower seeds and drank a seltzer. And now I'm real chill. Yeah, that was a mistake. <laughs> That's what you just kept riding the wave. Every Don't do that next conversation. time. We are, we're in prime hammock time, although I think I need to build a, uh, a screen to go over my hammock. I think I'm going to do that. So, Chris, I keep getting told that... Uh, people have a hard time telling voices apart between you and Anna uh, during podcasts. So we all have to introduce ourselves at the beginning. Wait, they can't tell between me I, and Chris. I was, I was kidding. <laughs> they just said it's hard to follow who's who. Why do you think that is, Amos? I, uh, apparently you and I sound alike, I guess. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> Perfect. Introductions. Is, Yay, oh, oh. we did it. We, we did it. <laughs> we need to start dropping that in more casually. So when we start the show, you come in and I'm like, hey, Amos, hey, how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I should say, hey, Amos, how's it going? No, no, I should. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly why we can't have nice things. What were the topics you want to talk about, Chris? Um, Before oh, me- you chill down on your hammock. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing is I, I just, I was chilling out and I was listening to podcasts because I love podcasts. I really, really love, like legitimately love podcasts. So I was just out of my hammock listening to podcasts, relaxing, not thinking about Elixir things. I need to put a hammock up in my backyard so I can stop thinking about Elixir things. Dude, the hammock is, is a way of life. Once you have it, you'll never go back. My, my son true. has one. I'll just steal his, put it up out back. Is the weather nice out there now? It is. We're in our like two weeks of like really nice weather before summer. (laughs) 
Wait, is summer not nice or is it just really hot? It's just really, really friggin' hot. Got it. And steamy too. Yeah, I mean, it's, you walk outside and it's like you just entered into a sauna. Mm. Anna, Anna's spoiled being out there in San Francisco. But I would actually cold, not appreciate hot. some hot weather. It's been so cold. It was like 50 degrees the other day. Oh, Hi, man. High of like 51. How do you do it? out there how do you survive in the last in the last week we've had 80 and 30 i had to get another light sweater to wear every day this is (laughs) killing me sorry sorry anna it was so cold you guys make fun so cold. There's no heat there, right? Like, I mean, no, in the sense that, like, your houses like don't get heated, right? Or is it that they don't get we don't air conditioning? We don't have air conditioning. Oh right. Okay. Two days a year that it's like 80 degrees. Everyone's kind of dying. Oh man! You just oh, open the windows. What a world! <laughs> <laughs> I would like some more heat. I'm kind of over this 50 degree weather. Uh, I'm gonna. Share I was this just sitting there the- eating my avocado toast. like dripped down my face i was like what is this sub-saharan africa what am i doing here i wonder if if the wheat in this toast was shade grown or something (laughs) happy do you know if they were happy so now that we're talking about the weather I've, i've got to share this so pretty early in my career, I, I did some work for the Navy and had to go to San Diego a couple of times. Uh-huh. And I would leave St. Louis and it would be like 103 degrees, 98% humidity. And I'd get to San Diego and it'd be like 78. And their office was on a cliff over the ocean with all the windows open. And they were complaining about how hot it was. And I was like, it was beautiful. I, I thought it was perfect. And then I come back in the wintertime and I leave and my plane is almost grounded because they couldn't get the ice off of it. They finally did. And I got to leave like an hour late and I get to San Diego and it's like 68 degrees. So it's like 10 degrees difference than when they were complaining about it being hot. And they were talking about how cold it was. And I was walking around in shorts and a t-shirt. Like, what you is get, going on? You, yeah. I mean, it's, it spoils you. You get, you get used to it. <laughs> yeah. I think San Diego ruined me. I lived there for so long. Even being back in San Francisco, I'm like, it's so cold. <laughs> the weather adjusts like three degrees and everyone's like, oh my God. I swear to God, there was a time when like, there was one winter in San Diego where I think the temperature dipped. Was it summer where it dipped into the 60s and like stores started selling winter clothing because everyone was freaking nice? Well, in the yeah, because the bay also has like inverted seasons, right? It's like Australia, kind of. <laughs> the bay just has one season, it's foggy. Doesn't it get colder in the summer essentially? Yeah, and then the nighttime, the uh, when the sun goes down in the summertime, it's freezing and windy. It's yeah, awesome. yeah. See, it's like Australia. You walk around upside down, and also your seasons are wrong. <laughs> so. And your toilet water drains back. Yeah, and it goes, yeah. yeah, so Coriolis effect. Yeah. Is that, is that what that is? Isn't that what that's called? Uh, I mean, don't know. Yes. I don't know. I think yes. that's that's why hurricanes spin one direction, but I have no idea. So would hurricanes spin the opposite direction? In the southern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. They're, but anyway. they're but they're not they don't look like hurricanes. I mean, the problem is is over in in the in the southern hemisphere, they're like giant spinning pyramids. I mean, they're upside down. <laughs> so the big parts all at the bottom. I'm not quite sure that's how that works. <laughs> no, I'm, how do they I'm, keep from falling science. off the earth down there? <laughs> oh my god, you guys! They have magnetic oh, boots. Oh my gosh! 
<laughs> All right. So All right, anyway. we've, we've messed up physics. We've had terrible weather reports. Oh, I remember some of the things that Chris wanted to talk about because we started to talk about it yesterday. And then he's like, whoa, hold off, hold off. This is this is good podcast material. Great podcast material. Yeah, Chris, this is what the people out, are for. Don't chill out on your hammock so, anymore before a show. We so need you punchy. I'll, I'll throw up. Two different throw up. things. You should I'm, go the, yeah, okay. I, I should. I'm. I'm not okay. So Are you I'll not feeling well? No, I'm fine. No, you're good. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'm so you. mad about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna throw up. Can someone <laughs> say the thing, please? Oh my gosh. Oh, hey, maybe when he gets out of the hammock, he still is punchy. He just doesn't remember what it's about. Yeah, he's punchy. He just doesn't have context. Anymore. He loses all context in the hammock. I think it's his seltzer. The seltzer is really kicking in all of a sudden. The seltzer is what's doing it for you? Yeah, the seltzer. Well, yeah. It's, the bubbles in the back the of your nose. Yeah. Uh, so, Amos, what are you going to say? Implicit versus explicit in code. Or. Data is greater than functions. Oh, I saw you tweeting about this. Macros. Yeah, why are you trolling me with that on Twitter? Don't do that. Because it's fun. All right. I (laughs) I really want to talk about the... I want to do a classic Chris move, which is to find a thing that people think is true and then poke at it. So so implicit versus explicit. Yeah, I want to talk about this implicit versus explicit thing. And we'll save the data is greater than code is greater than macros fallacy for a different time. (laughs) ideology i think that's what that's called that's called an ideology that's when that's when you believe in something and you don't even realize why you believe in it so we'll talk about that later it's like so hard this morning no i want to talk about i want to talk about implicit versus explicit this is the thing that i've been thinking about a lot i was actually thinking about it on the hammock a little bit then my podcast was really good so i started thinking about that instead um i was listening to philosophize this which is really really fantastic I was so hoping you were going to say Elixir Outlaws. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was listening to He has better things to do. Pontificate. Yes. Yeah, I was listening to myself. My ego couldn't handle, like, couldn't handle that. We'd have to widen the doors in our house. <laughs> My ego in the house. If I started listening to our podcasts. <laughs> and thinking about how great it was. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, man, I really nailed that. Well, that Southern lawyer accident's really good. <laughs> yeah, okay. Wait, let's philosophize this before we talk about Elixir. <laughs> uh, no, it's like a really, it's a really good philosophy podcast. Like if you're into, I mean, he, he starts all the way back and, you know, pre-Socratic philosophy and goes all the way up until like modern times. Oh, that's interesting. And he breaks it down and provides a bunch of context. Like I studied this stuff in school. But I feel like you don't really get a frame of the context of the world. Like there's like, you have to have a really good professor essentially to, to make sure that you actually like see the whole yes. world and like where these thoughts came from. And he bounces back and forth between Eastern and Western philosophies and oh, that's cool. describes like this sort of, uh, what's it called, an um, independent invention. Like basically what's the term of art for when two different people groups who have no contact with each other kind of arrive at the same ideas, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So he talks a lot about that. And he calls out a bunch of interesting, interesting stuff. It's like super worth reading. And it's, it's like really entertaining. He breaks it down in very like human understandable, like for the, the for the laity essentially, but it's good. Mm-hmm. All right. It's very in-depth. Okay. Implicit versus explicit. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah. So I was thinking about this idea of like implicit versus explicit and it, because it's a thing that gets talked about a lot in Elixir. Whenever I see it, 
I kind of cringe a little bit because I think people are using it wrong or they're taking it out of context or they don't, it's like, we're not defining terms. It's like saying something is strongly typed. It's like a sentence that doesn't actually mean anything. Not only does it not mean anything, it's like actually just nonsense. Can I get an amen? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like in the same way that strongly typed is not a real phrase that means anything. In the same way that saying functional programming, like in using that to somehow mean this category of things doesn't actually mean anything because functional programming means so many things to all those people. Like it, it implies things more than it says anything about the category. I think people do that with implicit versus explicit. So I want to break it down like a fraction and try to like sort of understand what is going on when people talk you about- say break it down like a fraction? Yeah. Okay, just checking. <laughs> you're, not supposed to talk, you're not supposed to comment on the jokes. <laughs> if you explain the joke, it's not funny. No, just clarifying. So, like I want to, I think last week we recorded, I said something like, there's more faults in here than the state of California, which was also pretty good. <laughs> you're so proud of yourself. We just I am. Going. Right. So I think people end up using implicit versus explicit mm-hmm. a lot to justify designs. And I, a lot of time they end up using, they end up justifying designs that I actually don't think are very good. And also I think that tacitly we as a community don't even really like. And so I want to try to break that down. Can you say more about all that? Yes, I would be happy to. <laughs> so the one of the ways that this gets manifested is that I think in general, people enjoy that Elixir's APIs are obvious in what they do. I think what people people really end up liking is the fact that we're often working with data and the data is moving through this series of like transformations. Like this is a thing that people really, really like. This is thing that people who've been in the community for a little bit of time to a long period of time, it's like one of the very first things that sort of like clicks for like super fans of the language is all of a sudden we can start dealing with this data stuff. And we're not sending messages to some object somewhere which then mutates its internal state away from us where we don't get to understand it. We actually get to like manipulate the data. And in that way, that is like an explicit thing, right? Like if you are calling, like as the caller of this thing, as the user of these APIs, if you're calling these functions, you want to explicitly call them. You don't want things to just happen necessarily that you don't really get to control. I think that's some of the feeling about it. Contrasted, and that's the implicit thing. Right, that's the contrast here. The implicit is something happens and you didn't necessarily tell it to happen, but it happens because that's just what it does. So I'm trying to think of a good example of that. And the only ones that I can come up with are all from like Ruby. And I don't know if I want to like go down with this, uh, <laughs> but I've decided that I don't care. So we're going to talk about it. So so like an implicit thing in like in Rails, for instance, would be the like automatic rendering of templates from a controller. Like you don't have to tell it to render anything, it just will. And it look, looks it up based on name and stuff like that. That's like an implicit thing. And I think people coming over from Ruby into Elixir tend to like the fact that you have to explicitly call that kind of stuff. Now you have to say like, render the thing. And this is exactly what I want you to render. And that feels really good. So it can feel good in a lot of ways, but I think the biggest thing is that implicitness is not bad right? Everything that we do, when we write a function and we hide some functionality behind it, there's implicit decisions inside of that function that we might not understand Mm -hmm. until we go dig into that function. And that's okay. And I think that the rendering example is also still okay, as long as there's a way to get a different behavior if you want it. 
But the problem, and I think the bite back actually comes whenever there's implicit behavior that changes a state. Right. That's where people start. That's that's yes. where it's a problem. When you yes. have something it's that you don't call at all and it's some callback way down in the system that changes the state of your system without your knowledge or your control. Well, and that's the thing. This is my pushback against that and that is this is like partially why I cringe when I hear these kinds of things because the APIs that people like, the people like tacitly like in Elixir are filled with implicit details. Like that's Plug. good. <laughs> like yeah, that's I, that's the point. Mm. You don't want APIs that are complex to use. You want to hide all of that complexity. To use my like go-to example for all these things, Ecto would be a worse API if you had to control like every layer of the stack, right? Ecto's a good API because you can just say run this query and it'll run it. And you don't have to care about how it checks out connections to Postgres, how it sends messages like over the wire, how it opens TCP sockets. Like you don't care about any of that. Not at the level that you're working at, right? And in that way, all those details are implicit. All of a single, every single one of those details is implicit. And they're probably implicit in layers. Like Ecto doesn't really know a whole lot about DB connection. It just knows how to call it. It doesn't really care about how it works. Although I think that's changed in Ecto 3, but setting that aside, like historically Ecto doesn't care. It just knows like I check out connections. I have some API to check out connections. DB connection understands how to pool things on how to, to efficiently queue work and how to like maintain connections to these different databases. And then underneath that, you've got like, Postgrex, which knows how to transform queries into the line protocol to send to Postgres. And then underneath that, you've got like some TCP handler thing and that knows how to open TCP connections and like maintain them and send messages over the wire and that kind of stuff. And like all of that is implicit. 100% of that is implicit. And that's good. That is a well-designed API. You don't want to care about any of that stuff. I think a lot of the difference is people understand that that stuff is there. So it's whenever the implicitness you don't understand, when it's magic. But that is magic. That's the, it, is, it is magic. <laughs> well, it is. But what I'm saying like is when it works at all is, is magic. Right? But when, it, when it's magic to somebody, whenever they don't know that it's going on. I guess I'll, you don't have to know TCP to know how to make a web page. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yes, yes. But, yes, but at I, some point, I, you know that there's a wire protocol. Or not your, your core point, but the thing that you said earlier, which I, I really think is accurate, is the thing that people don't like is when side effects happen that without you telling them to happen. Because mm -hmm. that's like a place where you can't, it's harder to reason about all this stuff. But, and then, and maybe this is just splitting hairs about terminology, but I think we have to be really careful about this because it's like saying dry, right? Like without really understanding it, or it's like saying inbox zero without understanding what that is actually intended to mean, right? If you just start saying like, well, this is more explicit, thus it's good. Well, that's not necessarily true. This goes back to like the decorator example from philosophy of software design. If in order to read a file as a, in chunks, I have to pass it through five different file, stream file, file stream cursor object decorator things in order to use the API correctly, in order to not make mistakes, that's a bad API. That's a tacitly bad API. Your API design needs to hide that complexity. It ought to hide that complexity so that you can't really misuse it in the default case. You want to be able to say like, do all these complex things. I don't want to know about them, but make it work, dog. And then let it go off and do its thing. 
and you just get to like take advantage of that. Now, I am for this idea of there should be like sort of safety hatches in your API design. Like occasionally you're going to need to get outside the bounds of the defaults. And at that point, you should have an API to be able to use. And that probably means that you're going to have to do more sort of setup and configuration. But by and large, like that's not the default case and it shouldn't be the default case because that's how you build APIs that are going to be misused. And that's how you build APIs that at the end of the day are much more difficult to to manage and much more difficult to maintain over a long period of time as your system grows. So do you have any examples of explicitness that, I mean, you gave one, but in, in the Elixir world that you see where there's some explicitness that is, I, I will call it leaking. It's a leaky abstraction, I think, if you have to have too much explicitness. Well, aren't we talking about just to Chris's point, it's really all about, like, I think, and not to get too pedantic about how we're using the language, but all about context, right? It's not like one is necessarily good. It's like what Chris was saying. It's not like one is good or bad or like explicit is always good or bad, but it's the intent behind it and the context it's in, right? There are certain things like to Chris's example now where implicit is beneficial, right? You don't need to know how every single piece of that stack works when you're trying to make a query to Ecto, mm-hmm. right? And so we're talking about context here, right? Well, and that, that, where is it important to be explicit? And right. where is it important? And where is it okay that things are more implicit? Yeah. And how do we define that rather than explicit is always better or not? I was going to say, actually bringing up Ecto, that's, that's where I see explicit versus implicit a lot. And it's really that a lot of the, the internals of the SQL leaks up and people start putting... Um, Ecto queries, I'm going to use Phoenix because it's common, like in their controller instead of pushing that down somewhere else and hiding it. That it's the Ecto query, what it's actually doing, the the SQL is all wrapped up inside of their business logic instead of just saying, give me, I don't know, the newest five posts, right? Instead of just having that be your API, you're actually like posts where greater than this time period at a high level instead of keeping that down low in your stack. Well, I actually think I agree with that example. I think to make it maybe a little more generic, and this ties into sort of the thing Anna was saying, I think it matter. I think it depends on what stack you're at. Like it depends on where, what layer you're working at, right? So if I'm working in my service layer, in the sense that if I'm building a service, I want to say service layer, because that sounds like an actual term or something like that. But it's like, if I'm building a service, I don't care about how things go to the database. I care about the results in the sense that like, I don't care about how things open TCP connections and pool and whatever else. I care about the results and I care, like, I care if it worked or if it didn't work according to the client, the database client that I'm using. And so in that sense, like all of those details are implicit. But at my layer, the thing that I am going to be explicit about is the queries. So when I'm writing queries, those are explicit declarative things. And I'm saying, I want you to run this query. That's the part of it that I'm going to be explicit about. And the things that I'm not going to care at all about are send it into some API somewhere and then do stuff. So I think these things get like mixed and matched Mm -hmm. and it's going to depend on the layer you're working at. I don't want to care about TCP at the layer I'm working at, but if I'm building the, the adapter to actually talk to Postgres, well, then I have to actually care about TCP. And then I'm going to be very explicit about how I'm dealing with TCP because that's the layer of the stack that I'm working on. And so it totally depends on where you are. 
if you're at that layer, you probably know it and you're going to build your API in such a way that it hides those details away so that upstream people don't know anything about like this TCP stack frame came in and this order and like, I, you know, got fragmented or whatever. Like you're not going to care about any of that stuff. You're going to return some meaningful error. So the users of your API can go, oh, okay, it worked or it didn't work. And you can like flow that all the way back up the chain. Right. So I think it really matters to Amos's point. If you go into a controller, and I don't know, this isn't like an example I super, super agree with. I think there's room to put queries in controllers at a certain level of, you know, where you are in the life cycle of the thing that you're building. But if you have some API that's like, get me users, get me all the users, right? Well, your controllers don't need to know or probably shouldn't know if you're building an API to get users, your controller probably shouldn't need to know about how that happens about what queries get executed, how it all works. That needs to be in some API somewhere that can return you a result. It's like, okay, we got all the users or no error. And this is the reason why. And it can be any number of things, right? So that's like the first stack, like that's your interface, right? And then you start like popping down the stack a little bit, like you start going deeper. So now you're back into your like using user fetching context thing, whatever we call it these days. There's some module with a function somewhere that gets users. And in this case, that, that function might be like, 20 lines long because it might need to do like a bunch of complex things. It might need to go and see like, okay, so I need to authenticate with this other service over here and then make a call to the, my database. And I need to check then against like some, the service that returns the band users. And it might need to do all that stuff. And you just do it on that function because it all makes sense in that one function. You don't want to jump around between a bunch of functions to understand how that logic works. But you put it all in that one function, it's all self-contained, and then there's a singular place to go when you need to update that state and that logic. So then you like go and get all the users. And at that point, you are caring about things like queries. You're caring about calling out to other services. You're caring about executing database calls, whatever it is. And then you're going to gather those results back up and return them in some nice interface. And in that way, everything that you just did was explicit to that function like the declarative nature of like, these are the, this is my intent. Like these are the things that I want to do. And now like, what do I do when they succeed or fail? But from the outside world, who's using that thing, it's hundred percent implicit. You're just saying do it all. And I don't care how it gets done. Now, does this also, do you feel that this also applies to data and data structures in an OO world? You don't really know the inside structure of your data. And in moving into functional, you can know, you shouldn't, have to worry about it. In, in a lot of functional stuff, you're doing pattern matching you're, and there's a lot of leaking that data out that ends up in other modules that don't necessarily own the data. Is that an implicit, explicit issue also? Uh, I think it can be. I think it can be. But at the same time, I think because we are just passing around values, like we're passing around data, we're passing and potentially turning that data into information that we care about that's used at sort of our interfaces. The problem with that is like lessened because the data structures themselves that you're returning are just values that you're returning back. And so you can start to deal with like whatever is inside of those data structures and ought to you know, know about like the internals of those data structures because the data is what matters. Like turning that data into information is like what's going to happen at your controller layer because your controller is part of your business logic. Like the interface is business logic, right? So taking the data out of like whatever function call you made to get all your users, you're going to get a bunch of data back 
And then you can get in there and start manipulating with that data anyway. Cause again, it's just values. Like it's just, it's just stuff you're passing around and turning that into information is going to be then like the job of your interface. Right. So you're going to have to know about the internals of that stuff, but how it came into being is less important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have a problem actually with the internals of the data being known too widely. I think that if you're going to print it, you might need a little more, but once something outside of where the data is created, when some other module knows about the internals of that data, then if you want to change what that data structure looks like in the internals of it and still have the same business logic results, like you find a better way of managing something. Let's say uh, you have logged in. That's a Boolean, right, on a user. So if they've ever logged in, you set it to true. And then you decide later down the road that you want that to be logged in at because there's some better BI that you can get out of it first login at. If there are multiple levels of the system that are looking into the data structure to, for that Boolean, now I have changes all across my system that I have to make instead of having one module that understands the internals of that. And now I just have one place to make that change, hopefully. But isn't that what we were talking about before, right? And maybe this is getting to your point, but like, as far as what level of the stack needs to be concerned with the data itself and what level of the stack doesn't, right? Like that's maybe speaking about in general, how we're designing our APIs and thinking about the context and which layer you're at, right? Because like, do those modules actually need to know? I mean, that's thinking like, do they actually need to know about the data, right? Do they need that context? Or in this case, is it better to have the explicit context in one place and have it be implied, so to speak, elsewhere, right? It's coming back to that conversation. Yeah, and I think a big part of that example as well is, I mean, it's, it's, I have a bunch of feelings about it. Number one, like, I think it totally depends on how big your system is. Mm-hmm. I think if your system is so, it gets so wide that it's gonna be a giant sweeping change across your system, your system's too big and you should be like splitting that up differently. But the other part is that, I don't know, it's just data. Like, mm-hmm. It's just data. Like build the data however you want. So if you want to move the way you would safely move to the world where you had a logged in at column is you would add it or like a logged in at piece of data, right? Like whether or not it's like to tie to a database or not. You add it without removing the old thing so that you don't break any of your callers because you have an agreement with those callers that you're not like, like they have that data, they use it. And like, if your day, if your service is so big that it's going to be a sweeping change, just leave it. There's no cost to leaving it. It's just data, like moving through the system. And like that duplication to me is fine. Like I would totally rather take that duplication than potentially break all of my call sites that rely on that data. And there might come a time where you can go and do those breakages that we call refactors and make it use some other piece of data to like provide the interface I mean, it also kind of depends on where your boundaries are. Like if your boundary is the API layer, like literally like the, the curl command comes in and, and that's the boundary of the system. Well, then it doesn't matter. You can just populate the like logged in field based on some other thing and no one is the wiser, right? If your system's big where like a bunch of internal stuff is relying on that thing, well, then you just don't break it. Like you just don't break it. You add the new thing and you derive logged in based on this logged out thing. Like when you, or sorry, logged in at thing when you like create the map that you're going to pass around, right? At the, just, at like, the very bottom level, derive the, the original data from yeah. the change data. Yeah, exactly. That way, that way you don't have a, a logged in 
Boolean or first mm-hmm. login Boolean and a first login at and have like the Boolean say that they've never logged in, but a login at timestamp set. So you mm-hmm. gotta. But then that goes back to, I mean, this goes back, this is just another example of what we were talking about in context, right? You can derive that at a very low level and that's where it needs to be explicit, right? Mm-hmm. And the rest of your system can keep functioning as is. So it's really yes. just like defining where it's kind of what we're getting at is like defining where you need to be explicit and where things can be implied, right? Because of yes. where you need that particular context. Yes. And I mean, furthermore, I, I mean, this is more of a personal thing for me, but I'm super, super anti-breaking changes and people do breaking changes all the time in the name of like refactoring, which I think is a bad word. And I'm like actively trying not to use it anymore. I mean, like legitimately, I think it, again, it like gets misused and it turns into things like breakages, which are just net bad. Like you can't break a system all the time. Like but that's you, not a thing that you can do. You just gave me an example of being able to refactor and keep it going the same way. Right, right, right. So, and that's a thing that like, I think there's, I think there's a distinction to be made between when we talk about change, I think there's a distinction to be made between growth and breakage. And I think a lot of people justify breakages when they don't need to. And so in that case, it's like, yeah, like maybe long-term you can stop using that field and you can control the world enough that you can stop using the like logged in field and like move everything over time. But the point is to do it over time. And you can start to make changes at sort of the lowest level without breaking everyone's preconceived notions of like how this stuff works. Well, I think that's what refactoring is supposed to be. So, Ideally. So, so don't change the word refactoring or try not to use refactoring. Like, you may have to explain it a little further, but they should change their word. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not actually refactoring, call it breaking. Well, the problem is, and the final thing I'll say on the refactoring front, and this is, I mean, none of this I necessarily have like hard evidence for at all other than like anecdotes as is true of everything. But the thing that I've run into a bunch of times is that even if something's wrong, like even if an API is wrong, like straight up not doesn't do what you thought it did. And so then you refactor it to do the right thing. That's still a breakage. Right. Because someone is probably out there relying on the, like the silly quirks of your API that don't exactly work the exact right way that you thought that they should. So even stuff that looks like it should be innocuous or like changing the underlying thing or whatever can be breakages. And I think it's like worth like treating that very carefully. And like, that's like overzealous refactoring can sometimes lead to this. Mm-hmm. I've seen that stuff happen too often in practice where people are like, I'm going to clean this up because it would be nicer if it was this way and inadvertently break an existing API or a caller of an API because they're changing the internal, like some tiny thing about the internals. But yes, so I mean, to think about it in this way, like the big thing that I, I see people doing a lot is not hiding complexity inside of APIs and justifying that in the name of explicitness. Yeah. Like in the same way that people justify, uh, you know, data is greater than functions is greater than macros. Like they're doing it, <laughs> They're taking that out of context and then using it to justify bad API design. I think that that's a real thing that can happen. And your real goal is to hide complexity, which often mm-hmm. means like side effects and those sorts of things and like moving those into like a singular location where you can kind of like attempt to control that. Well, and we have a better understanding of where they're happening, right? The whole idea is managing complexity, right? Mm-hmm. People say implied is bad because of that, right? Like it's implied is frustrating because there are side effects and you don't, and it's hard to track down when they're happening, right? So the idea is to 
figure out a way to better manage the complexity. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And furthermore, hiding complexity is as good as removing it Mm -hmm. at a certain layer of the stack. Philosophy of software design? It's, yeah. I mean, that book is, it's like my Bible. Like it's like changed my life like religion, man. Like, I mean, that book, I just resonate so much with it because I think it's it's a part of this. Yeah, it's so true. Because when we're writing, when we're writing software, it's all about managing the complexity, right? As mm-hmm. we're building systems. I mean, I think that statement is really true that hiding it is the same as removing it. You never have to deal with it. And I mean, also tacitly, like the APIs that people like in Elixir are the ones that deal in implicit details a lot. I think you can definitely go too far with that and hiding away side effects in ways that just like sort of happen. That's, you know, probably a bridge too far. I mean, I mean, not probably. It's like that to me would be a bridge too far. But I think there's a real balance there. And I think people should consider whether like hyper explicitness at all levels of the stack is really appropriate. Or are you doing sort of more damage to both your productivity and your API design by doing that? I agree. Well, especially if, to your point, Chris, being explicit potentially introduces complexity rather than helps manage and reduce the complexity. Mm -hmm. I think it's true. And it definitely increases coupling. Mm -hmm. It definitely increases, I mean, like not negotiably, it increases coupling. Uh, I was just going to say, I think, I think we get back to something that we've all commonly said before is like a rule, a suggestion, a something that's telling you how to write better software uh, is not an excuse to not think about the decisions that you're making. Right. They, like using they, those rules as a justification for the decisions that you're making is generally not always a good idea. <laughs> I don't know that you should use those rules for justifications ever. Yeah. Yeah. You need to talk about the points of why you you made that decision. Well, yeah, the intent mm-hmm. of why you're making the, like why you're actually making right. the decision as opposed to using a rule to justify why you're making the decision. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's those conversations happen all the time at Hawk. Like I was we have those we're working on a new service right now and we have those discussions all the time like we're going to choose to do it this way for now because that leaves us open to change in the future but the intent is to not do this forever and like we make those kinds of trade-offs every day and most people make those trade-offs every day and that's one of the things you learn really quickly doing consulting is like when you walk in and you see some project that's all a shambles and isn't the way that you would have done it all the puzzle pieces are put together in a way that is not aesthetically pleasing to your own sensibilities. You start to, I think people have like a real visceral reaction to that. And it takes a lot. I mean, this is why I recommend people do consulting this is one of the reasons I recommend everybody does consulting for a while. Cause you break yourself of caring about that stuff so quickly because you realize that like, or hopefully if you're a decent human being, you realize that all like those decisions were not made in a vacuum and everybody didn't look at that and go, oh, this is like the best thing possible. Those decisions got made piecemeal with trade-offs, with people talking about these things and deciding the right ways that they wanted to do stuff. And like, well, you know, making like, the best decisions emergent. Time, right? And like when you make decisions, it's not like you're always making the best decision. Like I think Sarah May talks about this a little bit when like going into legacy of code bases, et cetera, especially like assuming that people were trying to do the best thing they could at that time. Right. All of those decisions come with trade-offs. And sometimes you're not happy with the decision, but the decision is the best decision for that given moment as far as moving things forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like people make decisions for good reasons most of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's good reasons in the moment and you weren't there. You don't have the context, right? So yeah. like assuming goodwill and assuming... So you do learn that in consulting when you're like, oh, this, oh, well, I'm just going to assume that they were made for a reason. 
a year down the road, you may have more context yeah. and it may be time to go back and change that yes. decision. Or it may be time to just say, yeah, we could have done better, but leave it alone for now because it's not hurting us. It's not that important at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And when we talk about refactoring, right? If we, just to go back to that for a second, like why we're choosing to do it mm-hmm. and how we choose to go about it. I think I agree with you that like, similarly, it's like, as far as like the reason, the intent behind a thing, we're not choosing choosing to do it because it's more pleasing to my style of work as opposed to choosing to do it because it's time to like, there's actually a change in how we're building our system, but trying to do it in a way that doesn't break the system as opposed to like, well, I think it'll be better this way. Like that's not enough of a justification. Yeah. Rearranging all the puzzle pieces so that it's more aesthetically pleasing to you didn't remove complexity. It just moved the puzzle pieces. Exactly. And so like, like, what is the goal when we're doing those things? Exactly. Yeah. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe just leave it be. But yeah, I don't know. I think overall the punchy sort of contrarian example to this is like, I actually think implicit is greater than explicit. Like when you talk about holistic design. Mm -hmm. Well, it reduces complexity, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to really consider how we use these sorts of terms and how we talk about this stuff because we, I don't know, we don't want to use it to justify like sort of bad design ideas. I agree. In general, when we're talking about, I think we talk a lot about this, like language matters and the intent behind it. And just because there are guidelines or ways of frame, like, you know, words that we use to frame ideas does not mean that we can replace or justify our actions just because there are these quote unquote guidelines or things, right, that people have developed. It's really just those I feel like are useful as a way of framing context for a conversation, right, but not as like a, well, it's better because this. And those guidelines have large amounts of context behind mm-hmm. them exactly. and when they were created. And you have to have understanding. Now, the reason why they're just guidelines and they're, they're these little sound bites, they're supposed to be reminders of the greater conversation mm-hmm. around it. Exactly. And they're not supposed to be taken in the little mm-hmm. context. It's like coming up with a vocabulary, a specific word to mean something. If you don't fully understand what it means, you're probably going to use it wrong. So when you hear these things, don't just say, oh, I need to now go make all my code explicit everywhere. Like take a moment and step back and say, okay, well, what were they trying to do when they came up with this? And go read, go find out. Well, and what is the goal, right? Of why you're doing the thing? Not just because someone said it's better, right? But like, as we're building systems, like to make them more understandable and extensible and to reduce complexity and to make them maintainable. Like what are the actual goals of what we're trying to do? And then how do we get there? And then I I agree with Chris. A lot of times if something implied abstracting complexity and only having complexity in the places where you need it, like that makes a lot of sense. Hang on a second. Chris is doing a lot of pointing and looking around. (laughs) The deadbolt broke. I put my key in it. My wife just pulled the entire slug out of the deadbolt (laughs) in our door. (laughs) So then I have to go through my office. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, Oh man. Ow, Hi. Is something in your shoe? Yeah. Is it your foot? <laughs> no. No, it's something. It's something hurting. Something extra in your shoe, besides yeah. your foot. Hi. I can't feel it. Can't feel it anymore. I don't think you can hear us. You can't hear us. <laughs> wow, you really broke it. She's a lot. You better watch out. She's pretty strong. This is cast iron. <laughs> You, you, you never knew your wife was that strong. Oh, it was a All right. <laughs> wow. That's, I guess I got to buy a new deadbolt. 
That's crazy. <laughs> See, uh, you wanted all the things happening inside that Deadpool to stay inside there and be exactly. explicit. But Just now they're explicit the and it's a pain in the butt. Work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's awesome. <sighs> that was interesting, Chris. Thanks for bringing that up. I think it's an important thing to think about. Yeah, it's something, I don't know. There's a bunch of these kinds of things that I feel like are becoming memes in the in the community. And I, I want to really question those partially because I'm iconoclastic like that. And partially because I do think like we want to really consider the ways in which we talk about this stuff. Because I think it does matter a whole I agree. bunch. I agree. So yeah, but that's all I have. I'm going oh, back to my great. hammock now. All right. Enjoy yeah, your hammock. Like Thanks, y'all. It was fun <laughs> to actually talk to both of you. It's been a while since we've all talked together. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I've, I've missed having us all together. The, Same. The three musketeers. I did want to. I did want to shout out everybody I met at Elixir Coffee U. So many people came up and said that they really enjoy the show, and that meant a whole lot to me. And Aww. that sort of made my month because a whole bunch of people came up and like wanted stickers, wanted to talk about the show, and like just talk about like shuck and jive, and that was awesome. And I, I needed to write everybody's names down so I could have like said everybody, but you're all friends of the show in my book. So thanks for listening and all that. I wanted to get also give a real special shout out to friend of the show, uh, Bruno, who came up and gave me the most emphatic, like, thanks for the podcast ever. Um, so yeah, special shout outs there. But yeah, that was really, that was a really fun conference. It was good to see everybody. It was good to hang out. Prague is awesome. really nice. Yay. Prague is so, nice. Thanks for coming up and saying hi. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Yeah. We like it when people say hi, come talk yeah, to us. Come talk mm-hmm. to us. Well, thanks, y'all. That was fun. Yes. Have a great day. You too. Later. Bye.